And now we turn to the New Testament, and you will need your Bibles. If you care to follow along, I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2. For context, I'll be reading through verse 22, uh, 32, 22 to 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." sends the reading of God's holy word. The grass grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look to your word now, may the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. May the words of my mouth give instruction and wisdom be guided by you, O Lord. For we look to you for every good thing and we want to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in Acts 2. I don't remember the last time I preached, but it was a while ago. And uh, we will do something else next week, but then come back to Acts 2. So we will be doing more with Acts 2 in the coming weeks, uh, if the Lord allows. But what we've seen so far in Acts chapter 2 is on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people of God, not on the building, but on the people. And then Peter stood up, beginning in verse 14, and he started to address the people. And he started to proclaim the gospel of Christ and what was happening and to interpret for the people what was happening. So this is a continuation of that in verse 22. Peter continues his address to the people of God. And he's witnessing to them of what God is up to. And he says in verse 17, these are the last days. So he's interpreting the time in which we live when the Holy Spirit is poured poured out We live in the last days, the days of the uh, right on the edge of the second coming of Christ. And so in this section, Peter addressing the people, 
he says something basically in two parts. Now, I'm only dealing with verses 22 to 28, and you can divide that into two quite easily. The first is the public divine demonstration of Christ's origin, his execution, and God's vindication of him. So that's verses 22 to 24. And then the rest of our section to verse 28 is the quotation of Psalm 16, proving that Christ had to be resurrected from that psalm. And that's why I read the next few verses. That's what Peter does with this. But before we get to the heart of our section, we'll be dealing primarily with that first part, uh, I'd like to deal with a couple of preliminary issues. So this is a long introduction. I'd uh, like to deal with some uh, translation things in particular. And then I have a question for you. Yes. Yeah, there's a final exam as a part of this message. There will be a question. It's an essay question. And I want you to uh, reflect upon it. It's good training for us in our reading of Scripture. But first, let's deal with a couple of these phrases. We're dealing in verse 22 to begin with. And in this phrase, I was reading the English Standard Version. In this phrase, we have this uh, phrase uh, in the middle of this, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. That Jesus was a man attested to them by God. Now, attested, children, means something like witness to. God is bearing witness. He's attesting to the truth of something. Um, and it's a legal term in English for that purpose. However, uh, this is not the normal word for attest to something. Um, there's other words, actually, more than one, that mean that. And Peter doesn't use that word for attesting. I think it fits the context well, but I'm not sure that's what he's saying. This is a word that means something like demonstrate or show. God is showing something. He's demonstrating something. It's not that he's bearing witness, but he's actually demonstrating the truth of something. He's proving it. And this is the word you use for that. This is the normal meaning of this word. And I think this is what uh, you get out of the fact that attested with mighty works and wonders and signs. See, it's proving. God is proving something with these mighty works. He's proving it. Now, what is he proving? Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. And that is, in our text it says, a man attested to you by God. That's possible, but I don't think that's the best way to take it. I think you want to take that as a man proven to be from God. I think that's a better way to read this. A man who was proven by these signs that he was from God. Now, this is a major issue in the Gospel of John. If you want to know the secret to the Gospel of John... Gospel of John answers one question. Okay, this isn't really a secret. 
<laughs> and it's not the only thing in John. There's an awful lot more. But it's something that you can kind of hang your hat on when you're reading John. With John, the question is, where does Jesus come from? Where is he from? You get this over and over. It's interesting how the people will sometimes say that. Well, we know where Moses came from, but where does this guy come from when they're reflecting on Jesus? Where is he from? Um, and in the Gospel of Mark, for example, you don't have it put that way. In the Gospel of Mark, the, the question is, who is Jesus? Which is why the center of the Gospel of Mark is when Peter answers, well, here's who you are. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, you finally got it. Because he wants to know who he is. So in, in the Gospel of John, you get this question, where does he come from? That's what Peter's addressing here. God proved that Jesus was from him. That's what these signs signify. Now, if you want to see this in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Nicodemus comes by night, and what does he say to Jesus? Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. As a teacher, he qualifies it. We know you've come from God. No one can do the signs that you are doing unless God is with him. That's, that's a quote of that text. So you, we know you've come from God. The signs prove this. Uh, and so you've come from God. It's quite interesting that later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus' disciples finally get this. It's John 16, 29 to 30. And the disciples, now here I'm going to paraphrase, John 16, 29 to 30, the disciples say, oh, finally you're talking openly. Now we understand what you're talking about. Now we know that you've come from God. And Jesus says, now you know that. <laughs> it's finally, now you figured this out after all this time. <laughs> uh, but, but the issue is, now we know you've come from God. See, that's the, the disciples finally figured that out in John 16. And that's where Jesus has been leading them. Now, why does Peter say that to these people in verse 22 of Acts 2? Why does he say this? God has proven that Jesus came from God with these miraculous actions, these miraculous deeds. Why does he say that? It's because the people who put him to death are without excuse. They couldn't say, well, you... Now, okay, children, I'm a magician. I'm really good at doing magic. I mean, I can pull rabbits out of any hat you want, okay? And I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to go back in that room, see the door, I'm going to go back in that room, I'm going to take a hat, I'm going to pull a rabbit out of the hat, and then I'm going to put it back and then put the hat back. Then I'm going to come out and tell you, I did it. And you're going to say to me, yeah, <laughs> do it here where we can see you. If I do something hidden, you, you might be wondering, yeah, well, he can say he did it, but is he really proving he can pull rabbits out of hats? So you have to see it. That's what Jesus was doing. His work was public. There was no hiding with Jesus. He did it in their view. And notice that's what Peter says. God was proving this 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He wasn't hiding anything. He didn't claim to be able to do something. Oh yeah, I can raise the dead. All right. Yeah, I I do it all the time out in the desert when no one's around. Oh yeah, okay. No, see, that wasn't Jesus. He didn't want to make a big show out of it. He wasn't there to do miracles by themselves. They were not the focus of attention. They were only the focus of attention so that people would hear him and know who he is and where he came from, that he's from God. See, they were pointers to him. So he did them publicly, but he didn't want people to think that he's a magician and he's just doing this for entertainment and show to just you know satisfy their thirst for something new. No, they were signs that God was with him. They had meaning. And these people are without excuse for these things were done by God in their midst, things that only God can do. Now in verse 23, we have another thing I'd like to talk about, another translation issue here. I'm reading the, the ESV, as you know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This word for plan, again, this is not usually the word for plan. Um, what you have in translations is it seems to make good sense, and so translators say that makes good sense here, and they, they put it in. However, this is the word not for plan because that suggests a mental project or blueprint of what you're going to do. Instead, it was God's will. This is a word that focuses on his will. You can, you can render this word decision. It is his will. It is something that he has taken counsel to do, and it is his counsel. Uh, It is actually translated that way elsewhere, like in Ephesians, God's counsel. And that's what we have here. This is God's counsel. And this word uh, definite means it's determined. Now, this is a word translated when it has a prefix, predestined. It has the prefix pre, the thing in front of the verb, pre-destined. This is the word destined. It's that word. He, he destined this. He determined this. And so I like to render it as fixed. It's fixed in God's plan, true, so I'm not objecting to that as a biblical truth. It's just, what does it say here? It's God's fixed decision. It's his fixed counsel. And you'll find this in Ephesians 1, where you do have the word for plan. It's a different word. Let me read this, Ephesians 1.11. We were predestined according to his plan, who brings all things into effect in accordance with the counsel of his will. That word counsel is the word in Acts 2. So God's fixed counsel. And the King James brings this out. So if you look at a different translation, the King James, it renders this phrase, his determinate counsel. That means his fixed counsel. So God proved these things 
And he proved these things to people who cried out for the blood of Jesus, their Messiah. Even though you have these mighty works and wonders and signs, these things were in accordance with God's fixed decision. That's what Peter says. And part of the evidence of this is Psalm 16. This is why he invokes Psalm 16 also. This was God's plan because what he accomplished in Jesus, he told you about long ago in Psalm 16. He was determined to raise his son from the dead. He had made that a fixed counsel. That was his decision, and it was fixed. And then he told us about it a thousand years before it happened through David. It's God's fixed decision. Now, we also have in this text something that is really important to note. God did not crucify his son. He sent his son to be crucified, but there are two actors involved. You, through the hands of wicked men. That's what Peter says. This Jesus, delivered up according to the fixed counsel and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men. Lawless men. They are responsible for their actions. God didn't crucify his son. These people did. You hold the guilt because you did this of your own will. You desired to do this. You cried out for his blood and you are now accountable for it. That's what he says. Brothers and sisters, you know this is a Calvinist church. Our confession of faith is Calvinistic. We believe in God's sovereignty and human responsibility, both. How do we reconcile them? We reconcile them biblically by saying, in the end of the day, it's a mystery how it works out, but we know it's true. I can, I can describe it for a long time, but in the end of the day, we're left with a mystery. And frankly, I'm personally satisfied with that mystery. I don't know how my soul stays in my body. Do you? How is it that it doesn't fly away? What keeps it joined to my body until I die? And then it will fly away. And I will be, it's me. My soul is me, but my body is me. How do those things hold together? I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> We're filled with mystery all around us, not to mention the doctrine of the Trinity, a great, tremendous mystery. So this is mystery as well. But I do know something about this that's not a mystery, and I'm going to ask you to solve it. So here's your question. Why did Peter say this in verse 23? This Jesus delivered up according to the fixed counsel and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why didn't he just say, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of 
Bahosman. Why didn't you just say that? This Jesus you crucified. Why didn't he just say that simple thing? Instead, he adds this business of the fixed counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why did he say that? I'll be taking your written answers. Then make sure your handwriting's legible so I can grade them. I would suggest you do this often in your reading the Bible. Ask yourself that question. Why did he say that? Why do we have that there? What's the point of this? And that's the question. What's the point of saying that? Why did Jesus say, or Paul, beg your pardon, Peter, why did Peter say that in this message? He add that point when he could have just said, this Jesus you crucified. Really easy. Through the hands of wicked men. Here's my answer. I think it's to show the character of God. Now, I mentioned in Sunday school that many of the people, including Jewish people, surrounded by paganism, where the gods of the pagans were capricious. Capricious means you never know what they're going to do one day from the other. And one of the more important texts in the Greek world is the Iliad by Homer. The Iliad is about the fall of Troy. This is why uh, University of Southern California doesn't read their Homer very well. <laughs> the Trojans. Sorry, but they lost the war. Why would you have a Trojan? Sorry, beg your pardon. A little inside joke here. But the here's the point. When you're reading the Iliad, it's like a football match. It really is. And all the gods are the spectators, and they're watching the heroes fight it out, and they're rooting for one hero or another. Some gods like Achilles, and some gods like Hector, the Trojan. You know, the Argive and the, and the Trojan. So, so they're rooting for one side or the other. And Zeus, who's the father of all the gods and men, he's the big god, he's rooting for Achilles... I know he's reading for Hector, but when it comes time where Achilles and Hector are going to fight it out, this is the big guys now, they're going to fight it out. What does Zeus do? He says, well, my, my word rules. No, he gets his scales out, the golden scales, and he puts Hector in one side and Achilles in the other, and whatever the fates decree, whichever one drops to the ground, he dies. And that's it. Even Zeus is not, he's bound by fate. He, he doesn't control these things. And you never know what Zeus is going to do. That's the world of paganism. You never know what the gods are going to do. Because you have this morass of gods, all these gods floating around with different powers, competing and having different heroes, and you hope that you're on your good, the good side of the most powerful one at the time. But who knows from one day to the next? And that's not the God of the Scripture. The God of the Scripture accomplishes all of His holy will infallibly. He is 
all-powerful, all-knowing. He knew what was going to happen with his son, and it was by his fixed decree that his son would die. That's why Peter says that. Not a hair from your head falls except your heavenly Father attends to it. Nothing happens to you apart from your Father's determination. He attends to you. And He was so concerned about you that He sent His own only Son and even His crucifixion which apparently was his defeat, was actually a predetermined victory of the Son of God over death on your behalf. Nothing, nothing could stop that from happening. Not even all the evil of the world and all of their evil motivations could thwart God's good purpose to save you from your sins. That's why Peter said that. This was not some chance happening. This was not things unraveling in God's plan. Oh, well, I've got to go to plan B and hopefully this will, maybe, maybe I can fix this. I don't know. It's kind of iffy. No. This was God's predetermined counsel. He had determined that his son would die for his people. And it came to pass. By the hands of wicked people, They are responsible. And they must repent if they were to have any hope. That is why this happened. May I remind you of Genesis 50? Joseph invites his his brothers down. His brothers who had sold him into slavery for a pittance. They put him in a pit and they were going to kill him. Oh, then some traders wandered by. Oh, let's sell him and get a little profit out of this. So they sold him into slavery. And what is Joseph's response many years later when he meets his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to deliver his people. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was attending that action. And Joseph had learned the secret of God's good purpose for his people, even though he suffered. Even though he suffered the worst kind of tribulations that we could only imagine. It was terrible, the things that happened. Terrible. There's no making light of it. But God meant it for good in the end of the day, and he would have a recompense eternally. God reigns for good. Your God cannot be thwarted. His will must take place when he gives counsel, when he makes a determination and fixes it in the heavens. And here is what the Lord says to you now in light of that. And we know that that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? It is Jesus Christ, the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why Peter said that. So that you would be convinced in the hard times that may come your way that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.